Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Listening more specifically to another installment in October's little production series that I'm calling Epoque Conversation. In a bookie conversation, I'm just going to talk about horror movies, which I tend not to go on about in great detail, even though I love them so much because it seems so nerdy and niche. Today I'm going to talk about Halloween Kills. I'm going to talk about it in a minute. This is going to be a two-parter thing. I just went and saw it at a, at a fancy movie theater near my house, a theater that I very seldom go to because it's so expensive. But before we get to that, I want to start by saying that when I was a new employee at Miami-Dade College, around about 2014, I think, or, or, or the end of 2013, I had a superior when I was working there in the writing center, and I really looked up to him. And it was a very nuanced kind of respect that I had for this guy, because I had just gotten out of college myself, and now, suddenly, I was working at a college. I had zero interest in pursuing a higher degree of my own, but at the same time, I was working very closely with this mentorish figure. He was a very cool guy, very patient, down-to-earth. And I remember thinking, while I was in his company, that one of the things I was going to miss about being a student in college was no longer having mentors, like people who hold your hand and guide you through your encounter with a new field of thought. And so suddenly it was cool, in this case, this new job I was in, to find myself in the professional company of a mentor-like figure. He was in his mid-30s, roundabout, older than me, decidedly older than me, and decidedly more mature and more educated, but he also he also li had lived through a lot of the same cultural touchstones. Being a guy in his mid-30s, he had still grown up with a video game console in his house, for example, and at least when he was in, I guess, middle and high school, he had access to, you know, regular access to the internet. Well, as I've mentioned, I no longer work at Miami-Dade, and the other night I was talking, I was catching up with another one of my former colleagues from Dade. And he was telling me about, he was catching me up on the affairs of that mentor figure that I'm, I'm, I'm referring to, uh, the guy who struck me at the time as, as being so passionate and patient and cool. Apparently there have been a lot of complaints to HR about this guy, which was a bit of a shock to me, especially because the dude is in question is like an avowed feminist. And I think he made, a, a, he made me a better person in the way that he, he could very gently point things out to me about how, like, there were little traces of misogyny in my everyday speech that I didn't really realize. That He was always very hasty to say, like, it's not because you're a misogynist, but it is because you are a product of an inherently misogynistic culture, and these things kind of weasel their way into your vocabulary. And as they weasel their way into your vocabulary, well, if your language is misogynistic, then your thoughts will be somewhat misogynistic, and all you just have to become vigilant about that that loop that feeding loop and now like as i tell you all of that it will because that's the build-up i guess it will come as no surprise to you as it came to me that the reason this man has been listed in so many complaints to hr is because he makes female colleagues uncomfortable 
He stares at them a little bit too long. He gives very uncomfortably lavish and specific compliments about their appearance. Which incidentally brings to mind, I may have discussed it at the time I was reading it, my favorite essay collection that I've read this year is Thick by Tressie McMillan Cottom. And she has this particular essay where she talks about the, the practice of negging, N-E-G-G-I-N-G. It's a word that comes from that book, which I think is called The Game, and the subtitle is something about, like, the player's manual. It's a, it's a, it's a manual for, for straight guys to pick up women. And one of the tactics that it encourages is this thing called negging. Negging is when you're talking to a woman at a bar, you, you lavish her in compliments, you say, oh, you're so beautiful, I love your outfit, whatever, and then you, sort of as they're talking, you, you look at them and, you, and then you squint as though you've just noticed something off. And when they say, oh, what, what's wrong? Is something wrong? You just say, oh, no, you got that. You got that one tooth that juts out kind of weird, don't you? Oh, you? Never mind. Anyways, you were saying, and the, the idea is that this is negging, where you make them feel very good, and then you, you point out one little flaw that makes them immediately self-conscious, that tears them down. And this apparently makes them more eager for affirmation, and so they're more willing to go home with you and do things that they wouldn't normally want to do. And what um, Trusty Cottom is, is, is pointing out in that essay, she, she takes a different approach, but she's illustrating how the culture is constantly negging women. And for instance, you'll, you'll see now, like with Dove, the brand Dove Soap, they'll, they'll have this ad campaign of like all bodies, and it'll show women of all different sizes and heights. And, and, and sort of the, the rhetoric of the, of the branding will be like, you are beautiful. Everyone is beautiful. As a woman, you are flawless. But maybe you want a little moisturizer? You, you might want to moisturize a little more. Because you're kind of dry. You're kind of scaly. You're a little reptilian. Reptiles are beautiful. Reptiles of every shape and size and color. But you, you shouldn't look like it. You should moisturize a little bit more. Anyways, I strongly recommend that you pick up Tressie Cotton's book, Thick. And also, one of the things that's wonderful about The Thick, and one of its ironies, is that it's a very slim book. Anyways, the reason it came up is because that dude in question, uh, my former mentorish figure, he was recently appointed to a higher rank in the department. And because he was appointed to this higher rank, more people were having to confer with him, more people were having to answer to him. And suddenly, all of my colleagues who'd known him passingly, in the way that I had known him, they were suddenly spending huge amounts of time in his company. And as they were spending that time in his company, they were seeing these weird behaviors start to manifest. Like the fact that he's got all of these passionately held convictions about the rights of labor, and making workspaces comfortable for women, and making sure that institutions are more mindful about being accessible for people who are disabled. Except now, as a high-ranking person in the department, he is routinely enacting these sorts of measures that are clearly all about balancing the budget. No matter who gets fucked in the process, no matter what it does to sort of blemish the credibility of the education, he is implementing and sort of sustaining practices that his earlier sort of labor-affiliated self, the dude that I, that, by whom I was so enchanted when I got out of college and I was kind of joining the workforce and trying to see what kind of man I want to be, he is like now the living antithesis of that guy. One of the women who's working around him and who has seen his, his weird attempts at flattery, which are maybe flirting, she, she has this more charitable assessment where she says that, you know, he's just very much a geeky guy. And it is clear that he was probably never comfortable around women. And now suddenly, for the first time in his life, he is working not only in direct proximity to several women, meaning the two or three secretaries immediately outside of his office, 
he is also working in a position of direct authority over those women. Ezra Klein had an episode last week in his podcast. He was talking with the essayist Maggie Nelson, whose new collection is called On Freedom. He observes that at the moment, we live in the most sexually liberated time in history, but we also live in one of the most sexually cautious times. Kind of like it's this very awkward growing pain where we are now like reconfiguring the parameters of polite social behavior because for a long time, the stuff that we thought was men, stuff that men thought, the stuff that men thought was appropriate social behavior was actually very aggressive and inappropriate, but the consequences of, ever, of anyone ever speaking out against the horrors of that behavior were grievous or draconian, whatever. Like it just, it, so many people decided it's, you know, it's easier to endure this and get my paycheck than to jeopardize my paycheck by standing up against it. His creepiness came up as one of many weird characteristics that he's demonstrating now, he, now that everyone can see him and they're working so closely with him. And one of those strange habits appears to be a kind of, a kind of extreme frugality. A frugality, a frugality that seems to have teeth to it, where he, he will come to work in shredded clothes and then, you know, if someone says, oh, hey, look, I just saw online this, this outlet is selling pants that fit you for just 20 bucks, and he'll sneer and he'll be like, $20. It's a frugality, in fact, that is now occasionally evolving into freeloading. Like a subordinate, this actually happened, a subordinate will go to the cafeteria to grab something, but before they step out, they'll pop into his office, and because they have to get his permission before they do that, they'll say, hey, do you want something? And the superior will say, oh yeah, I'll get a uh, one of those turkey sandwiches. And the sandwich is seven or eight dollars, his subordinate goes out, gets it, brings it to him, and then he never pays her back never offers to pay her back. And of course the subordinate, like, she feels uncomfortable to be like, excuse me, employer, would you do me a kindness and compensate me for the meal that I provided? Which reminds me, uh, maybe I mentioned it at the time, I don't think it came up in the conversation with Jonathan Alter that I did hear about his Jimmy Carter biography, but apparently during the Carter administration, whenever somebody came to the White House and had like a, a lunch with him in just the general dining hall, he would hand them a check which was like a check for two dollars because it's a pastrami sandwich in 1978 but it kind of blew me away when i read that for some reason like there was a principle of it which i on the one hand which is maybe admirable because carter's position was like this is the people's house and i will not have the american people pay to feed my guests but it also looks kind of terrible i think it looks terrible you're having a pastrami sandwich with the most powerful man in the world presiding over the most powerful nation in the world and then he hands you a bill for two dollars anyway the reason i'm starting off with some remarks about frugalities because one of my biggest disappointments in the year 2020 is that Halloween Kills, the sequel to 2018's Halloween, was delayed a full year, from one October to the next. And it sounds like a fucking stupid thing to say, about like saying you were so aggrieved by that in a year when hundreds of thousands of people were dying from a horrible pandemic. Apart from that, like I was really upset. I was, I was excited for Halloween, so I was upset by its delay. I was so disappointed by the movie's delay, so e I was so eager to see it that I made like a vow to myself. And I was like, man, when this movie comes out, I'm gonna see that shit. I'm gonna see it in style. I'm gonna go to a nice theater. I'm gonna buy a beer while I'm at that nice theater. And I'm not gonna give myself a hard time for the fact that I'm spending three hours in a movie instead of, you know, taking and taking that time off work. But then the movie comes along, October 15th, 2021. And I'm excited for it. I'm, I'm just as eager as ever to see where the story picks up after, you know, the 2018 version. But then I go online and I look at the price of a ticket for, for that fancy movie theater near my apartment and it's 
plus every beer costs $10. What it amounts to is I'm basically looking at spending 50 bucks for the occasion, in including tips for the servers and everything. And that's not a huge amount of money. Like, not for a good, momentous two-hour occasion that I know I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to uniquely enjoy, and that I've been eager to enjoy for the past two years since it was announced. But for some reason, I have a really hard time spending money on myself. I love blowing money on gifts and feeling like the fucking big man on campus by leaving a big tip at a restaurant, but I feel like a total asshole when I buy a hardcover book at retail price. And I told myself I was gonna do the same thing with Cry Macho. I was like, man, this is probably, definitely, gonna be the last time that I'll ever be able to see a new Clint Eastwood vehicle in theaters. Although that was also the re- that was the rationale I gave to myself when I spent like 40 bucks for a lavish experience of watching his last- uh, his last starring role in The Mule a couple of years ago. And The Mule wasn't even that good! And I'm not even that big a fan of Clint Eastwood. It was fine. I guess what, what mostly held my attention in that movie, which was so uneventful, it's fine. But I was like, oh, look at, look at, look at Clint Eastwood starring in movie pictures. Moving around at 90. And having topless actresses put their breasts in his face. Which happens. He take, it happens. Something I've noticed on that lecherous old man front, incidentally, is that the like the shitty Steven Seagal movies that come out now, they're always they're all straight to video, and and they're the ones in which Steven Seagal is a morbidly obese septuagenarian who happens to be the karate star. They're also super cringy in the way that like all of his action scenes are done with stunt doubles. When they if his face is in a shot, it's like him just waving his open palm at people, and they go hurling through glass when you, at, the, at the suggested touch. A couple years ago, I got curious and I watched like three of them in a row. But movies that he had made in the past decade in which he is just like conspicuously out of shape and old. And I noticed that even though these new Steven Seagal movies very much abide by an action movie formula of there being like a damsel in distress, and then some sort of examination of the, the, the codes of brotherhood among alpha males, I noticed that Steven Seagal doesn't get the girl anymore. There's always a scene where there's a, there is always the damsel in distress, and and they they're they're getting older. The women are like in their 30s or in their they're in their 40s, and there's almost always a scene where like for some reason they sit on Steven Seagal's lap, and he like caresses their arm. But then it's always pitched at the end that he's rescuing them within some kind of avuncular capacity. He also still doesn't die in the movies. I was wondering if like the reason that he no longer gets the girl has anything to do with the fact that Steve Seagal is another one of these guys with reams of bad behavior on his reputation. Of sexual harassment against women just in his private life, and also against, like, violence against stuntmen. Because apparently in most of his shoots, he would, like, refuse to pull a punch because he said he wanted the action to look authentic, which in reality, it's just because he's, he's vindictive and wants to hurt people. Anyway, this morning I was thinking about going to see Halloween, and I was shying away from spending 40 or 50 bucks on the occasion, and at the same time, I was thinking of last night's conversation about my old colleague's apparent perviness, and the fact that apart from being pervy, he's also incredibly cheap. And I was like, you know what, uniformly, in more ways than one, let me just not be that guy. Let me take myself out, spend some money, have a drink, see a Star War. And so that's what I did. And I'm glad that I did, because... I, I love the ho Halloween franchise, I like the characters, I like all of its tropes, and I particularly like what's going on right now, where David Gordon Green is making his own trilogy of it, putting a cool spin on it. But another reason I enjoyed it so much is because, as I will explore in the second part of this episode of Epoque Conversation, Halloween Kills is a piece of genre entertainment. 
something that can be enjoyed on its surface, as just a certain kind of story, a booky one. But it works at the same time, or tries to, maybe it succeeds, as a basis for more nuanced conversations about other things. It wants to talk about fear itself, and about mob violence, and maybe even about nationalism, and, and also the way that generationally women inherit the, the violent trauma of their mothers and grandmothers. And yet, as the critic Grace Randolph pointed out in her mostly favorable review, is Halloween Kills really the best place to explore those issues? Probably not. And that, in turn, the idea of handling a larger topic than maybe your occasion can handle, that idea creeps into the fact that feminism is something that I'm trying to explore in earnest with the things that I read and watch. Except there are all these layers of trying to confront that material where I'm like, first of all, is this kind of silly podcast really the platform for discussing those things? And also the question of like, am I really the person to even be trying to? Especially because most of the really interesting stuff that I hear on the topic, the stuff that's, that is worded in such a way that it genuinely infiltrates my, my thinking and expands my understanding of things. I get all excited about what I've just learned and the way that it was worded, and so I go and I share it with people. And then, most of the people to whom I share this epiphany, they're like, they're either like, okay, one, thanks for ruining my day, Alex, or worse than that, they're like, well, congratulations, Alex. I'm glad that you got to live a life in which you never had to think about that, but I have to think about that, and I, and I would rather you not remind me. Whenever I try to talk constructively about these things, or to share something that I just learned about them, I'm always afraid that all I end up doing is illustrating. Just how narrow the parameters of my bubble have always been. And it is, it is a bubble whose narrow parameters I'm recently learning were once upon a time pointed out to me, and broadened slightly by someone who, purposefully or not, had his own history of violating boundaries. Which was its own kind of... T tough revelation to process in this year's spooky season. But the weird and potentially misguided ambition of Halloween Kills also lends to its enjoyability, I think. And so, while I know that it's a bit odd and tone-deaf on the surface, or maybe be deeper than the surface, from my experience and my little bullshit inner conflict about going to see a bookie movie should also be an occasion for addressing such huge topics as, as the ones I've been addressing here, but I'm just kind of trying, going forward, to be prudent with the issues that I address, but to address them as earnestly and as directly as I can. But also, in this respect, I'm also here to talk about a bookie movie I saw, and whether I liked it, which I will do, I did think, I'll do that right now, in part two.